Hi there. We're back. It's another Dishcast. Just want to say thank you to all of you who used last week's podcast to get on with it and subscribe to the Weekly Dish. Again, we're doing it this week. We're going to give the entire podcast to our readers and have it away to everybody. But we wanted to give you something, and we're really grateful. We had a big, big bump in subscriptions. So it was good. Our little nudge got you going. We have some really interesting people coming up. We have John Gray, the professor. We also have Aurelian Kraitu, a rather brilliant political philosopher who's written about the tradition of moderation in political philosophy, which is a lot more interesting and fun than it sounds. <laughs> and we also have, maybe as a counterpoint to Rod, James Allison, the Catholic priest who has got into trouble with the Vatican. Well, not this Vatican, but previous Vaticans, and, and, is, and is writing and has written a great deal about reinventing Christianity in a, in, a, in, a, in a new and rather more modern way. Which brings me to my first guest, my first guest, my only guest, for fuck's sake, I'm sorry. I'm just, uh, it's been a long trip from LA. I had a good time there for the weekend with Bill Maher. And oh man, we had a, I went on his podcast, which is going to come out in a few weeks and God help me. But yes, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a lot of indica involved. Anyway, Rod Dreher is my guest today. Rod is an old, old friend. I mean, He's an old friend. <laughs> He's not old and a friend. But we're both old, for fuck's sake. We are, I, I've got to stop using the F words because people got upset last week. But we're both old. Rod Dreher, he's basically an old school blogger, one of the best early bloggers. He also created a really amazing community online of, of readers that was really a model, I think, in some ways, so many others in the early blog years. And he's now living, as we will shortly discover, in Budapest. He's a senior editor of the American Conservative and has written many books and became super famous when he wrote The Benedict Option, which became an international bestseller and had Rod invited across the world. And recently, How You Survive as a Christian or as a traditional person of faith in a secular culture increasingly hostile to religion altogether, live not by lies. Rod, it's been a long time. It's lovely to see you. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing pretty great, Andrew. Thank you for asking, even though it's been a hell of a year. As most people know, I'm in the middle of a divorce right now, but and I've relocated to Europe. And I'm, things are going well, but I've learned a lot in this past year. And my faith has never been more important to me than than it has become as I have sort of bookended the the story of my of the last ten years. I mean, it's funny you say you say that we're old friends and we are. You came to me on Easter Vigil in 1993 at St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington. I had just come into the Catholic Church. You we had met like briefly somewhere through Douglas Copeland, I think, and you came up and welcomed me into mm. the Catholic Church, and I never forgot that. The next time we saw each other in person was in New York around 2013 with the release of my book, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, which was a book about homecoming. Mm. I had moved back from all my travels in Washington, New York, everywhere in Dallas, Philadelphia, moved back to my hometown after the death of my younger sister. Well, and here we meet again with all of that having fallen apart, me having popped up on the other side of the world. And here we are again. So it's good to see your face. 
This is, our, this is our third face-to-face, is it? Because I feel like, you know, it's funny, when you were online all the time as we were, and especially when we were blogging in the old days, I, I, I feel like I know you, just because, partly because I think you write with such a lack of guile and honesty that you can't help but be true, it seems to me, in what you say. And so you reveal and have revealed a huge amount about your internal life, your 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 spiritual life every aspect of your life through your writing so let's let's start with how that writing bug began with you now you tell tell me where you tell tell everyone where you grew up and and what your family was like and and how that began began to form you as a person well i grew up in a small town called st francisville right on the banks of the mississippi river in south louisiana and it was just me and my sister, Ruthie. She was two years younger than I, but she was the son my father never had, really. She was the one who wanted to go out hunting, and she was a good athlete, and all of these country things that I just wasn't. And I found my refuge in books. And I would go, when, this is before kindergarten even, I had these elderly aunts, Aunt Hilda and Aunt Lois. They were so old. They were born in the 1890s and had been Red Cross nurses in World War I. And they were living in a little cabin at the end of a pecan orchard out near our house where I grew up. And when I was little, I would go up there every day to sit in their cabin on their red leather couch. And I can remember they would fold out the Rand McNally Atlas and point to me the places they had lived, especially France, where they had traveled during you know, after the war. And they showed me pictures of the Red Cross Canteen in Dijon, things like that. And I was just captivated. And I can remember, too, Aunt Lois would read to me Time magazine and taught me how to read, too, at an early age. And those words like Brezhnev and Kissinger and Moscow, to me, they were like totems that called me out of myself. And my poor father, who was a countryman and, you know, was a good dad in most ways, he just didn't know what to do with a son like me who lived in books and whose head was far, far away and not there in the country where he was being raised. Well, I, I identify a lot with that, of course, because you just basically described my childhood. Although I didn't have a tomboy do- sister, I, I did have a younger brother who I think uh, saved the reputation of the Sullivan boys. <laughs> my dad being the most extraordinary athlete and my brother being actually kind of good at, at sports in a way that I was just pathetic. But yeah, I was this bookish, retired, retiring in the woods, in the outside, in the countryside, or in my room reading books, uh, uh, and yeah, we were kind of regarded as how do you put it, gender nonconforming. <laughs> well, I don't think my dad had those categories. Yes, you were. Yes, let's. Oh let's no, no, confess I mean, I, I you are gen- you're, you're a gender nonconforming. That's, true. That's child. true, but you know, I I mean, I played baseball. I did all. I went hunting. I did all the things to please my dad because I wanted nothing more than my dad's approval because he was, was and still is the greatest influence on me, one of the greatest men I've ever known, just a brilliant man, a very strong man. But I knew that even though he loved me and showed his love for me all the time, I knew that he didn't approve of me. And that was a wound that I carried the rest of my life and had everything to do with me moving back. Speaking of your dad, we do need to say, as well as being a brilliant, he was also part of the, you came out recently, part of the KKK. Yeah, in the 1960s. Um, what, did that, what did that mean in the 1960s? 
I mean, presumably early 1960s. Yeah, I think it was, what was he I, doing? Here's the thing, Andrew. I suspected this was true, but my dad and I had to stop talking about race at some point early in my college career because we would always just fight about it. And I never really probed deeply because I kind of didn't want to know. But I knew that so many of those white Protestant middle class and lower middle class men, men like my dad, were involved in the Klan in those days. And, uh, and it turned out that the local judge was, I found this out many years later, was actually the head of the Klan. Now, this is in a parish, that is to say county in Louisiana, where over half the people were black. And I, I can barely imagine what it was like to try to get justice in a place like that. But I was born in 67, so I, I was in the first generation in our town to go through fully integrated public schools. And it's weird to think about now, but we never talked about segregation, the civil rights movement, none of that. And I, I, I think that probably there was a spoken or maybe an unspoken understanding among local black and white leaders that if we're going to make this thing work, we're just not going to have we, we just can't talk about it. So I didn't after my dad and I fought and fought and fought in the way that one does with one's father when one is a, an ardent liberal teenager. And you could have been a right-wing Reaganite then, but if you were liberal on race, then you were a liberal. But it just... But hold on. Being a liberal or a conservative on race does not... The KKK are a different order oh, yeah. of... of um, so, I mean, you said, and I don't want to hop on this, but it just fascinates me. So you kind of feared that your dad might be doing this kind yeah. of thing. Presumably, the arguments you had with him about race would have had him expressing what 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 kind of things would you uh, say you liberals don't know what it was like you know you this you that and there wasn't even a real argument there it was i could i can look back on it now and see that for my dad it was less about race itself than about i can't believe my flesh and blood the the boy who was na named after myself because my name is ray oliver Dreer jr actually disagrees with me on that and that's how my dad and I would argue about anything. I mean, like I said, he was a brilliant man, first in his family to go to college, but he was so domineering that it was his way or the highway, as we say. And so we put race aside, as a lot of white Southerners of my generation have had to do with their families just for the sake of you know, keeping family relations. He died in 2015, and, and I, I said, well, I guess I'll never know. Just before Christmas, some journalists found in an FBI file that an informant informed the FBI that my father gave my, them my father's name as a list of people he thought were in the Klan. Now, the informant could have been lying about it, but I, I think it probably was true. And of course, it's extremely painful to learn that. And I talked to my confessor about it. You know, I'm an Orthodox Christian, and my confessor said, You have to pray for your father's soul every day for the rest of your life. And I do that. But for me, Andrew, you know, it was, it's a kind of thing where I, this is part of being a Southerner too, at least in my generation, is having to realize that your relatives, people, and your neighbors, the people of an older generation you grew up loving and honoring and learning from, that most of them believed horrible things about Black people. And in the case of my father, it seems, did horrible things too. And it's, it's a terrible thing to have to try to come to terms with. But this is one of the reasons I absolutely hate and have hated even before I learned this about my dad, hate the way we approach history and our country now about 
you know, having make, make everything, see everything through a strong ideological lens, because that's just not how people are. I can remember growing up in that house in the country and seeing my dad holding all these awful views about black people, also going out and helping poor black people get running water into their house, bailing them out of jail, doing incredibly kind things that I have never done, even though I hold many more of the correct opinions about race. So it's, as you used to say on your old, on the old dish, you know, it's so complicated or it's so hard to, <laughs> to figure out where to stand on these. People. It is. It is. Yeah. And I, I happily, I don't have to grapple with anything like that, but I, I, I did, did the fact that he was so important to you and that he was, and he he's, I knew you knew his racial views were terrible, but did the, this revelation just make you reassess his influence over you or on you? You know, probably less than you would think, simply because I had come to terms many years ago with the fact that my mm -hmm. father was mm -hmm. a product of his time and place. And it's not to excuse it, but just to try to contextualize it. I remember when I moved back to St. Francisville at the end of 2011, shortly after I got there, a friend of mine who's a white liberal in town shared with me an article from Ebony Magazine from 1964, which is a black magazine. And it was a long account of a day in 1963 when a black pastor went to register to vote in the courthouse in our hometown. And it was a shock to me to read it because there was a white riot on the courthouse lawn. I was living at that time one block away from this beautiful, gentle courthouse. And yet this, this beautiful place and my sweet, calm hometown had been a place of real violence to protest an elderly pastor registering to vote. Reading this article made me, they didn't name any of the white people in the mob, but I thought, what if my dad was there? And I, I bet he might've been, or, and, or a lot of men, maybe some women I grew up admiring as a boy had been in that mob. And that really set me to thinking. And then I realized, Andrew, that you know, the only way that my generation ever got any counter narrative to white supremacy was through television, network television. It wasn't that our parents or the school or anybody else sat there and taught us these are the tenets of white supremacy. Here's the catechism you must believe. It was just ambient. It was the 1970s in the small southern town. But I realized that my parents, both of them, had grown up in a pre-television era. They had radio. But, but you were never going to hear any challenge to the white supremacist narrative on radio or in the local media. And by the time TV showed up, their opinions were already formed. And again, it's, it's not to, I don't want to come across as trying to justify in any way what they believe, but it did teach me how contingent our beliefs about anything are on our media environment. And, you know, I, and I, th I bet kids who were raised on the internet have, a similar story to tell today when they're talking about parents, the parents of my generation who didn't have that, who were formed only by network TV and by know, maybe radio. And in that, in that sense, Rod, truly globalization by which I mean, simply the, the loss of localities being able to really exist as localities that they're now increasingly, even if they're little villages in the middle of Africa, connected to the entire world. The signals that were sent to you as a kid are being sent to countless more people now yeah. than ever before. And of course, all sorts of weird ass signals yeah. as well. Not just, not just the signals that you were getting from 
three networks and a highly regulated only on print press and a, and a very stable time in America, well, the early 60s, a, a very stable time in American history. So so as you grew up, you obviously saw your future somewhere else. Yeah. And t- tell us how you, how you, what you did, where, where that was. Well, I, I remember I was so lonely in high school, you know, in a small town school. And I was a good student. I was a nerd. I was picked on. I was bullied. I just wanted to get out of there. I wrote off to a pen pal agency. This was around 1980, I think, in, in Europe. And I got some European pen pals. And I just lived to write letters to these pen friends in Europe. And I dreamed of going to Europe. Everything that I hated about where I lived, it didn't exist in Europe. And weirdly enough, they felt the same way about America. We were just projecting our teenage dissatisfaction on, and the, the dreams we had onto the other. Then my dad was one of the first ones in our town in 1981 to get a satellite dish. And, you know, it was one of those giant ones that looked like an upturned gazebo that they put, he put in the backyard. And MTV showed up in our house. Suddenly, London was heaven. I had to get to London. But I, by then, my dad would say things to me like, well, well, what's a talking head? You know, or Thompson twins, how come there's three of them? You know, stuff like, he was baiting me. But, but that's where my head was. It was, you know, in London. I ended up going to a boarding school for gifted kids in Louisiana, state-supported school. And uh, that was where my life really began. Because for the first time, I was in a place where I didn't have to cringe and keep my head down because I liked to read, because I liked new wave music and all of the things that have been part of my life, a part I adored back home, but which were things I had to be ashamed of. And going to this school, spent my last two years of high school there, that changed everything because it helped me to know, Andrew, that there could be a place for people like me in the world. I just had to get there. Was the uh, school, uh, did you do take an IQ test or something to get in? Or was it just people, kids with very high grades yeah, that got selected? Yeah, high grades. This? And you, I think you took the SAT. And there were kids from all over the state right. there. But it was really interesting. They had quotas because they needed to build support for the school, political support for it. And they had a certain number of kids from each parish, that is to say county. And it was so interesting to get there. The kids who came from big city schools, like in New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Shreveport, the big cities, they were fine. But we who came from small town schools, I remember there was this sense of PTSD that many of us had, like, I can't believe we've got to a safe place now when we can be who we want to be. And that was the first time that I actually met gay kids or kids who are openly gay were at this school. And I think that, you know, even though, as, as you well know more than anybody, I'm, I'm pretty conservative and Christian about my, my views of sexuality. It's also why that I think people of my generation, even if we are conservative, we're not conservative about it in the way that our that the older generations were, because it was our generation that was the first one to have gay people who are our friends. And I think that's a good thing. And it's why I've written before that I'm, I'm glad the closet is over. And a lot of these kids that I became friends with in this school who were gay had been bullied like I was, you know. For them, it was because they were gay and they were smart. For me, it was because I was smart and socially inept, I guess. But but we were there. We had this sort of bond of trauma, I guess you would say, that, that has really kept a lot of us who were in that class together over all these years. And then where where to college? Where did hmm. you where did you become your... You know, I, I, 
effete liberal elite. I wanted to go to Georgetown to go to the Foreign Service School, but and a lot of my friends at oh my god, well, a lot of go my on, friends sorry. ended up at Yale and Harvard, places like that. But my father said, "Hell no, well, I'm not going to let you take out student loans for an Ivy League education. You can go to LSU, Louisiana State, like like I did, like everybody else does." And oh boy, I was so angry at him, but. It was one of the greatest things he ever did for me because I was able to go to school without debt. And um, and I really learned so much about about life there. I mean, it sounds cheesy to say it now, but going to school with kids from all over the state, many from working class backgrounds, it was a very different thing than the Ivies. And I even had a couple of my friends who ended up at the Ivies who came and did a semester at LSU to qualify for a cheaper tuition on a study abroad program. And they told me that they actually enjoyed being at LSU more than they enjoyed their Ivy League school because people weren't so uptight. And uh, the professors actually cared. If you really wanted to learn, the professors cared and they, they, they showed you attention. So I, I graduated LSU in 1989 and went to work at a newspaper in Baton Rouge, the hometown paper I grew up reading. And I remember, Andrew, the, the wall fell and a lot of people of our generation, at least in the U.S., wanted to go to Prague to, you know, have, an, have a lost generation adventure because it was cheap there. It was supposedly a lot of fun. I came so close to doing that myself. But I had managed to get a really good job at the local paper as a film critic. And these jobs just don't come around for kids who just graduated from college so I didn't do it, even though I'd read Milan Kundra and imagine living in a garret in Prague and with you know naked bohemian girls wearing nothing but a bowler hat like in the novel. But that was the road not taken. And I'm really glad I didn't take it because I would have gone over there and probably drunk too much beer. And who knows what would have happened to me in my career. In fact, I, I stayed in Louisiana and then I came to Washington in 92 to work at the Washington Times. And that's when my path crossed yours, when I became a Catholic. And it was the first time I became a Christian. I mean, I was baptized Methodist, but our family didn't really go to church. And I didn't take Christianity seriously until I walked into the cathedral at Chartres in France when I was 17 years old. And I was, my mom had won a trip at a church raffle, a trip for Europe to Europe. She didn't want to go, but she knew how much I loved it. And she put me on the bus, the only young person on a bus full of elderly Americans. And all I wanted to do was get to Paris and go to the museums. But the bus stopped outside the city, about an hour outside the city, so we could all go see an old church. And I just I didn't want to go see another old church, but I went in anyway. And that's where I met God, in the cathedral at Chartres. And it was a feeling of overwhelming awe. There was nothing in my life growing up in small-town Louisiana in the late 20th century that prepared me for the glory of God made manifest in that medieval cathedral. And I just remember feeling this overwhelming sense of, I want to know the God that inspired men whose names we don't even know to build such a temple to his glory. And that's what started me on the road that ended up with me joining the Catholic Church in 1993. Chartres Cathedral is... I went there also as a really? teenager, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the parallels between us are a little creepy. But And I, 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 I had God already. I mean, I'd been confirmed, baptized, confirmed, and was very serious about my faith as a teenager. And I was mainly, I was two things. One, 
it is it is a, it's just a staggering work of art it it, it 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 implies a civilization to my mind just infinitely superior to the one we live in it the beauty of it and i can't imagine what it must have been like when it was first completed to be on a pilgrimage if you think coming from 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 louisiana in modern world, having seen lots of things and then seeing that blew your mind. Can you imagine what it's like being oh. a peasant, knowing nothing, seeing nothing, and walking and seeing what must have seemed like an entire spaceship that just landed yeah. on, on the landscape in this extraordinary expression of sublime beauty and, and quiet. And I was just scandalized that there were people walking around it taking photographs. Mm-hmm. And walking past the altar as if they didn't have to jail yeah. it. <laughs> I was, I was, I was like, what? This is absolutely flash photography. Are you, are you insane? It's my, my, maybe my first real outburst at like, at, 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 at public <laughs> disturbances in, in sacred places. I just feel like, no, 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 no. And I, I remember kneeling down and looking at that great rose. The rose uh-huh. window at the very end of it. It was just sort of, and you can get lost in its gorgeousness. And yeah, I, I can see, I, I don't see how that aesthetic experience, I do see how it's compatible with faith. In fact, an expression of faith. But I don't understand how it makes you, Chris. How it, how it, it, presumably it wasn't just the beauty, it was some sense of the awe yeah. and confidence of this civilization well, yeah it was I, I i had no words or no categories to put this in about how it was that the stone and the glass and the way they've arranged things how it all served as what i would now call an icon of god it served as a sign pointing me to god and you know you can overanalyze these things to death but i think it was it was mystery it was like you know the first time dante meets Beatrice, he talks about how he felt another god had overwhelmed him just seeing her. And it was like that with me and Chatra. And I, you know, I didn't walk out of there as a reconverted Christian, but I did walk out of there on a search. And it led me through Kierkegaard and Thomas Merton and all kinds of struggles. But eventually I surrendered and I became a Catholic. And I was such a happy, proud Catholic. And part of it was my own vanity. You know, you remember what it was like in the 90s in Washington. I, I felt like I was, you know, I was a new conservative, too. I'd been liberal in college, but had a turn around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I thought I was on Team Newhouse. You know, Richard John Newhouse was the great intellectual leader of the Catholic neocons. And I thought, that's my team. He's my captain. And I was so arrogant intellectually. I didn't see it that way. I thought I was being a good, faithful Catholic. And, you know, and I, I'm not saying that the things I believed were necessarily wrong, but the way I believed them, I used my faith as a triumphalist club, at least in my own head, to beat other people with. And I don't blame the Catholic Church for that. That was me. Because I realized many years later, Andrew, that for me, becoming a Catholic was in part about finding a substitute father. I didn't realize this until I'd gone through so much more. We can get into that later. But I I w- went to see John Paul, Pope John Paul, when he came to New Orleans in 1987, summer of 87. And I, I don't know why I went to see him. I was just absolutely fascinated by him. And 
I remember going to see my my then girlfriend at, at Tulane before the Pope was there. And I told her, I'm sorry, we can't sleep together. The Pope's in town. She said, are you crazy? I'm like, yeah, well, and we never saw each other again. But I was just so taken by him. And I think what I saw in John Paul was an idealized version of who I wanted my father to be. He had the same strength of my father, the same confidence and the same compassion, because it, you know my, my dad really was a very compassionate father in most ways. But I felt that John Paul would approve of me, would approve of me being an intellectual or intellectually minded and artistically minded. And so I projected all of those needs onto not only Pope John Paul, but the Catholic Church. And then it all came crashing down in 2002 with the scandal. It's interesting you talk about that appeal of the, the Catholic Church. John Paul II was, yeah, an extraordinarily dynamic, vibrant figure. I think we've forgotten that because he, in his last years, he was so weak and frail and, and really a, a pitiful. I don't mean that in any, just in literally, you, want, you felt pity for the man. But as he started, there was this, and it was, of course, caught up in the enthusiasm of the post-Cold War world, really. Do you think that that need for father made you, in some ways, that, that that's the wrong reason to believe in God? Oh, yeah, I concealed I mean, it from myself, I mean, absolutely. But we always do, don't we? But what, you, what you're saying there, then, is that one can, you, can, you can reach for religion for reasons that are not about its essential truth. You can, you can wrap yourself in its doctrine as a status. You can, you can, you can, you can use clerical power for your own advantage, for example. You can become a Christian because you, you really just want to control your sex addiction. You can become... And, and that's really, of course, we're all human, so an element of that is in all of our faiths. But it's not what we should be believing things for. And in some ways, it's as simple as that. You can't instrumentalize belief. No. You can't, you can't personally instrumentalize the love no, of God. No, you can't. And for me, I mean... I but we do, right? We do. And at what... To what extent, when you saw the sex crisis, the abuse crisis, did you think, what has the Catholic Church been doing with religion? Have they been using it for their own power, glory, and in the end, power to, to conceal acts of evil? And did that, did that not make you question the authority yeah, it did. And that's why I left the church after four years, four years of scandal. I remember. Now, hold on. So you became a Catholic in 93, but this is, this is 10 years later. That's when the scandals first broke big out of Boston. You had a decade, basically, of yeah. a relatively happy Catholic yeah. existence until this, this stuff began to emerge. From that's right. And I, you know, and I learned things that you, you've been there too. You wrote about it and just the evil that was uncovered was just un unimaginable to to most of us. And I I can remember at the time thinking, you know, I, I didn't fall off the turnip truck. I know there's evil in the church, but I just couldn't imagine how deep it was, how broad it was, and how twisted it was. I, I remember sitting in my office at National Review the spring of 2002. Boston broke in January of that year. And this was, I don't know, February or March. I was on the phone with a farmer in Kansas who his son, Eric, had why were you on the phone with a farmer? Because I was I was writing a piece about abuse. Okay, right. I'm sorry. And okay. and this, okay. his son Eric had blown his brains out at the age of 19, and 
came out after Eric died that Eric had been abused by this one priest. Turns out, and the former was telling me about how they found out later that there were five suicides, five boys killed themselves, all victims of the same priest who eventually went to jail. And the diocese knew everything about this guy, this priest. They kept reassigning him. But I remember sitting there in my chair in Midtown Manhattan, listening to this farmer tell a story about when he got the call from his daughter that Eric was dead. And he, the farmer, had to go sit on his front porch at their farmhouse and wait for his wife to come home to tell her that their son was gone. And he described seeing her car turn in at the end of the very long driveway and move slowly toward the farmhouse, him knowing that the words that were about to come out of his mouth was going to destroy her life. And I sat there in tears because my wife and I had recently, you know, well, he wasn't not recently, but we had a little boy who was two years old at home. And that, I, I'm getting tears in my eyes just thinking about it right now, but that, Andrew, is, was a breaking point for me, one of many breaking points. And I realized that we were not dealing with ordinary evil here. But I, I can remember, too, Father Tom Doyle. You might have talked to him. He's a very brave priest who basically destroyed his clerical career to speak up for victims starting in the 80s or 90s. Father Tom told me when I called him early on in the scandal to interview him, he said, Rod, listen, I can tell that you're a serious Catholic, and I want to warn you, if you keep going down this path of investigation, you are going to go to places darker than you can imagine. I said, well, Father, thank you for the warning, but I feel like I have to do this as a Catholic, as a journalist, and as a new father. He said, oh, I, I want to encourage you. I'll help you any way I can, but you just, you just need to be ready. This is dark. I couldn't have imagined how serious that warning was until it was too late for me, because I always thought, Andrew, that as long as I had the syllogism straight in my head, all the arguments, the propositional arguments for the Catholic faith, my faith would be untouchable. It would be behind this citadel of propositions. But that's not how it works. I kept, I was worn down over and over and over by hearing these stories and the lies that priests told. The thing that finally broke it was we had moved down to Dallas and we had gotten close to this one priest, and I just loved him because he gave such a good Orthodox conservative Catholic sermon. And he told me that he had been driven off from Philadelphia, no, from Scranton, Pennsylvania, by the liberal bishop. And I thought, oh, isn't that just like those liberals? Come to find out, he was actually had been kicked out of the ministry, suspended after he had been accused of sex abuse, abusing a minor had come down to his hometown, Dallas, talked himself into church, into serving in a parish by convincing the pastor that he had been falsely accused, and let's just not tell the bishop. And the pastor went along with it, and I, I came out of my home office and told my wife what, what the truth about Father Chris. She literally collapsed on the floor, sobbing, beating the floor, saying, we can never trust them again, and we never did. And what... I guess you were also forced to confront was the fact that this was not easily divided between the liberals are, are diddling, the kids, the conservatives are, are, are I don't mean to trivialize No, no, you're right, you're right, yeah. But, 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 but the conservatives were the upright people. Whole up, no, 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 it, it was everywhere. What? And it barely mattered. Does it not at some level make you wonder, because it does me, because the only reason we found out about this is because we live in a very modern world with a modern press and, and, and a world in which deference to clerical authority has essentially disappeared. 
when I think of traditional Catholic countries like Ireland or Spain or, or Poland, and, and, and you think of the past, has this been going on for centuries? I mean, that's my fear, that in fact, power, that amount of power with that little amount of accountability, just as a, just as a simply as just a, a proposition in human yeah. nature, suggests the church has long been harboring people who have been really beyond evil. Now, for me as a Catholic, grappling with it, it was incredibly hard, not least of which because, of course, they immediately said the reason all these people are doing it is because they're all homosexuals, which, of course, is a way of doubly abusing those of us who were gay in the church and who could not conceive of anything like this. And to be sort of associated with that just simply because of our sexual orientation was was another kick in the gut. But it really wasn't about the gay stuff that I, I couldn't go anymore. I just couldn't go. But I, at the same time, I also understood what my mother would always tell me, which is that our Lord will never, never forsake his church. He'll always be there. So you just, the church also is always been corrupt. You should not be surprised. And they would always get the, the, the lesson of St. Peter, the founder of the church denied the very, he even knew the guy in three times in one night. So we don't expect the institution to be anything but rotten. And in fact, if you kind of take the even war argument, which is that given the only, the, the proof of the faith is true, is that nothing else could have survived the abuse it's received at the hands of its practitioners or the corruption of its leaders. So I, to be honest with you, I hold that quite, I hold the institute, I've had, here's what, I had to hold the institution far more loosely. I, I honestly could not accept the same level of moral authority I had given it before. It was impossible. Yeah, yeah I, I, I get that. From but I didn't leave because it is, it is the architecture of my life and also at some deep level the way I express mm -hmm. my faith in God and in, and in the Gospels. And where else do I go? And, and so, but I find that interesting. And you, you perhaps, because you had grown up without any firm attachment, you That's had right. not been rooted to a particular tradition. So you were kind of shopping in a way yeah. for Christianity. And then, you, and, and, so, and then your solution to dealing with this abuse problem was to become an Orthodox. Well, person. yeah, and that, that's, that is a misunderstood thing by some people who don't know me personally. I, when I lost my Catholic faith, it wasn't that, oh, suddenly the arguments don't work. I thought that's the only way I could, it could ever happen. I would quit believing in the arguments. I describe it as being more like holding on to a, an iron skillet over an open gas flame with your bare hand, and it gets to the point where you can't hold it anymore. I just, I didn't think it could work that way. I just couldn't believe anymore. And I, I, I didn't lose my faith in Christ, in God, but I said, I remember telling God in prayer, I'm like, I want you more than anything. I can't find you through the Catholic Church because of its brokenness, because of my own brokenness. And I really do believe that one of the reasons the scandal hit me personally so hard and didn't hit friends of mine who were every bit as angry as I was, but they stayed Catholic, was because I had so much of my trust in the Catholic Church built up or, or entwined in an unconscious idea that they were a substitute father. But I, my wife and I started attending in Dallas the Orthodox Cathedral only because we knew from our Catholic belief, we hadn't completely lost it then, that the Orthodox had valid sacraments. And we couldn't receive as Catholics, but we could at least be present and be there in the church with a beautiful liturgy within the real presence. 
And finally, we said, this is it. This is, we're going to become Orthodox. But I had to become into a very different kind of Orthodox Christian than I was as a Catholic. For one thing, I had to ditch the intellectualism. It's not that you have to make yourself stupid to be Orthodox at all, or Orthodox theology is very deep, but the Orthodox don't lead with the mind. They say the heart has to come first and the mind follows. And it, it sounds kind of emotional when you put it that way, but once you get into Orthodox theology and the philosophy behind it, it's really, really profound. But I had to realize that if my faith was going to survive, it couldn't be in my head. It had to be in my body and in my life in a much more incarnate way. And I also couldn't be so proud and triumphalistic. I couldn't trust the institution as the Orthodox Church as I had the Catholic Church. I mean, some Catholics would say to me, oh, just you wait, you think you're going to a sin-free church. And I thought, no, I'm not. I know that. I know the Orthodox Church has got sin. There's not a sinless church in the world, but I came in on my knees as a broken man. And I knew also I had to not get involved in church politics. I used to care so much about who was up and who was down in the Vatican, who were the good bishops and the bad bishops. I remember one night when we lived in New York in Brooklyn, we had a bunch of our Catholic friends over for dinner and us guys got to drinking and it was always the guys who wanted to argue about the faith. And, you know, we spent the whole evening talking about the church as an institution. When we said goodbye to the last guest who was a priest, my wife shut the door and looked at me and said, we need a lot less Peter in this house and a lot more Jesus. And it was a profound way of putting it because I had allowed this love for the idol I had made of the Catholic institution to take the place of the living God. Now, a Catholic would jump in and say, oh, wait a minute, the two aren't, aren't necessarily, you know, God speaks through the institutional church. I'm not questioning that. I'm just saying that I allowed, I, basically by worshiping the institutional church and Father Newhouse and all he stood for, I was worshiping my own intellect. So, yes. Could you not say that certainly your absolute insistence on orthodoxy in all matters of sexuality has more of the head than the heart in it, is more like the old belief that you came to doubt, which is that it, it's, it's more sort of these are the rules and you take them all or not. It is all about imposing them regardless of the impact on the human beings involved. And it is really quite demanding in ways that most of modern society is unable to give. And on this, it's no, not, a, not an inch of, of concession to the lived lives and theology of, for example, gays and lesbians in in the Christian churches. So could you not now be deemed to be exactly the legalistic, rather cold, <laughs> old-school Catholic triumphalist, except you're not even Catholic, but, but telling people in a way that does not actually put the heart yeah. first? Well, I think it, that we can't get around what Scripture says so clearly about sexual morality, hetero and homosexual. And I've lived by that myself, sacrificially. You know, I'm not patting myself on the back, but you're right. It is a very, very difficult thing to do and a painful thing to do. But I, for me, believe it or not, 
the, the thing that finally broke me and made me realize that I had to become a Christian and a Catholic was night back in 1991. It was the night that David Duke lost the governor's race in Louisiana, the, the Klansman who ran for governor. I was at a party celebrating his loss and got loaded. Gosh, how old would I have been? Maybe 24. Woke up the next morning in bed with a girl I barely knew. And she said, oh, this is my most fertile time of the month. And uh, we were both blind drunk falling into bed. And I said, oh, God. Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>